Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Dr. Miranda Wilcox, Associate Professor of English at Brigham Young University. She earned her PhD in Medieval Studies from the University of Notre Dame. We're talking about the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints, which Dr. Wilcox wrote the afterword for, called Medieval Christians. Miranda Wilcox, welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. Thanks, Blair, for having me this morning. And you wrote the afterword to this book, Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints. Do you remember how the editors got in touch with you for this project? Well, initially they asked me to write a regular chapter, and I told them I don't study late antiquity. (laughs) So (laughs) they came back a little while later and said, actually, could you write the afterword about medieval Christians? And I'm a medieval scholar, and so I said yes. I think it was such a good idea because most of the book focuses on late antiquity, right? So uh, the first couple centuries of Christianity and you're covering the Middle Ages and it kind of serves as a nice bridge from the early day saints kind of connecting up to the years before the restoration. So give people kind of a sense of the scope of that in time and geography. Okay. It's impossible to say much about medieval Christianity in 5,000 words. Um, I mean, it was just sort of an audacious task to think that I could say very much uh, in 5,000 words, because typically the medieval period has been periodized in Western historical periodization as a thousand years, so roughly from 500 AD to 1500 AD. And and Christianity spreads quite quickly um, across Europe into Asia, as far as China, um, into Africa, um, north towards Scandinavia. And so there was no feasible way that I could possibly address the scope of Christianity in all of these regions um, to any substantive degree. So I ended up deciding to focus on what I know best. My research focuses on um, medieval England, and um, and so most of my chapter deals with uh, Western Christianity. In particular, I gave examples from um, English Christians because I, I know them the best. Covering such a huge amount of time and such a huge amount of territory in such a small space was a real a real feat. So congratulations. I think you did a great job. Your chapter lets readers know that Christian life – has been more about just leaders and followers. You you identify kind of four categories of Christian life that Latter-day Saints might be less familiar with. There's clergy, so leadership, laity, like regular members of the church, um, communal ascetics, and individual ascetics. So unpack those categories. Uh, sure. And these categories, I mean, are modern categories. Um the categories that the medieval saints uh, would have thought about would be um, the professed religious, 
they were the professional religious class that developed in late antiquity and then morphed into a huge array of possibilities in the medieval period. And then the people who were not professional religious and they were the laity. So the religious and the laity were probably the, the two categories that you'll see in the medieval sources. I found that for the trying to write this chapter, it was helpful to break it up into four categories. And I was, I was drawing on some scholarly sources to do that. So the clergy are men who are ordained to officiate in the sacraments of the church, um, for the Christian community. Um, so this would have included everything from a doorkeeper, uh, an acolyte, a subdeacon, a deacon, all the way up to a priest and a bishop. And, and they were focused on, they were often based in a cathedral or um, a larger church where, and even parish churches where uh, liturgy was performed um, on behalf of the entire community. There were also the regular clergy. Um, these were people who decided to leave behind their the secular world and often their families and live either in a community of other professed religious. So this might be a monastery or an abbey or a convent. There were lots of different names for lots of different communities. And these groups of people who lived together, some of them were all men, some were all women. Some communities, actually, there were men and women living in the same community, not in the same buildings. But in England, in early England, there were these joint monasteries that both had women and men and were often and governed by abbesses, which is kind of unusual. Um, because they're because female. they're female, right? And I give an example of Abbess Hield in my chapter. Um, she was the leader of a male and female community uh, at Whit currently the the town is now called Whitby. And then there were also individuals who felt called to very individual mystical lives or lives uh, where they lived in isolation uh, as hermits and they focused their life on prayer and many of them wrote about their experiences of fighting off demonic forces. And so Christianity was pretty diverse at this point. There were people that experienced the faith in a lot of different ways, whether it consumed their entire lives, whether it was something that they participated in, in addition to doing regular trades and having families and things. Christianity could be experienced pretty differently by different people. And I liked how your chapter drew on art and poetry, song and worship and things like this, instead of just scripture or religious text or theology or, or liturgy or whatever. Talk about that choice to focus on those types of sources. Yeah, there were a, many diverse ways that um, people could become a full-time religious practitioners. And as lay members, there were many ways for lay members to uh, live their faith as well. And so I wanted to focus on how medieval Christians, their whole life was their faith. Their whole community was oriented around um, feast days, the holy days uh, set by the liturgical calendar. And so the community would gather together on those feast days to celebrate the liturgy, often in dramatic forms with um, processions. For, for instance, today is Good Friday, and today would be the day that people would go on the Stations of the Cross and remember and even reenact um, parts of the crucifixion story communally together. And that would be a way for the 
for the entire community to remember and be participants in the Christian salvation history. Um, so their lives and the, the biblical story would merge in these imaginative, creative ways um, that really helped Christians feel like they were, in a sense, almost there with Christ, still. Their their performances and their, their liturgical experiences, ceremonial experiences became melded into this this larger Christian experience. And in addition to celebrating as a community, people were very inspired to create art. And a lot of lay Christians were not literate in the sense they didn't know the professional skills of reading and writing. And so other ways that they communicated their faith um, with each other was visually. Most of the church's probably had murals inside. They were highly decorated. There were statues with clothes and um, paint. And so today when we go into a medieval European cathedral and they're just stone and they, they seem dark and maybe forbidding, that was not at all what they looked like in the medieval period. They would have been very colorful and filled with, with people and maybe even animals um, who flew in or walked in by you know, accident because the, the buildings were open to the public most of the time. Um, and so art um, was a was a great way for people to uh, communicate uh, their faith with each other and to to feel a sense of resonance with important pe- scriptural figures like Mary, like Jesus and, and saints. The canonization process of saints took quite a while to develop, but in many local regions, there were revered saintly figures who whose lives became um, special to that community and were recognized as, as saintly figures. So you're looking at all these different things, art and music and poetry, and the kind of things that everyday Christians would be experiencing and even producing. And you look at four different aspects of Jesus's ministry uh, through this chapter. So you're going to look at those sources and look at four different aspects of Jesus's ministry. And the first one's the incarnation, making sense of God becoming a human or uniting Godness with humanity or whatever. What's a, do you have a favorite example of, of a poem or a piece of art or something that shows us what these Christians were thinking about when it comes to the incarnation, because you point out how that's going to be processed differently in different cultures, different cultures bring stuff to the table. And then what they produce kind of shows us what they thought about Jesus and his incarnation. Yeah. The theological concept of the incarnation is that uh, God entered the world in fleshed as a human being. And so this linking between heaven and earth this mystery, how can this happen, is the heart of, of incarnational theology. And and this was a mystery for medieval Christians. They were trying to make sense of this um, in within their own cultural media um, and their own cultural experiences. And in the early medieval period, um, a lot of people are, are converting to Christianity, and so they're bringing their previous cultural traditions and their previous religious traditions, which we actually know very little about because almost no records survive, at least in um, early medieval England. And this is getting some some scholars called a synchronization, where multiple cultural influences are impacting the way that they're celebrating their faith, they're 
making sense of their faith. So one example I give is the Ruthel Cross. It's currently in southern Scotland. And the Christians living in this region were probably likely fairly new to Christianity. There were Irish missionaries who were coming and establishing monasteries and preaching, evangelizing in, in that region. And, and people were being baptized, um, often when a, a religious leader of the community would be baptized and the entire community would be baptized. So missionaries were pretty strategic in top down, <laughs> convert the king and your whole kingdom's going to join. And then of course it would take generations for the entire community to kind of fully enculturate yeah. as Christian. But there are these large stone sculptures that have survived in Northern England and Southern Scotland that are intricately carved. And scholars still don't know precisely um, the reason why these sculptures were made. Some think uh, that they were sites of preaching, that people would gather at these crosses, and then the missionary or maybe priest could then tell scripture stories because they're kind of like comic books. Each panel has a different scriptural story, um, and some of the panels may even refer to other myths and legends we actually don't even know what all of the panels for all of these stone sculptures even mean. They've been eroded over time too, so sometimes they're hard to see. But the Ruthel Cross is clearly very Christian, and several. Of the, I talk about several of the panels, and one of them has a picture of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and it's surrounded by an inscription in Latin um, of scripture, but right next to it is a panel with vines, and it's inscribed with an old English runic inscription from a poem that in modern day has been titled The Dream of the Root. And that poem is about a cross, or the cross, talking, like we get the story of the crucifixion from the cross's perspective. Like the rood is the cross, right? Wasn't that like maybe the, the rood is the cross. cross. Yeah. yeah. So rood in Old English means tree. Okay, um, yeah. And so this is the specific tree um, that the Romans cut down like he tells us he grew in a forest and then he was cut down and became the cru- crucifix. And he, he takes on the guise in the poem of, of, uh, an old English thane. He sees Christ as his lord and he really, a, a thane is supposed to protect a lord. So it's, it's completely antithetical to the cross to, to not protect the lord and, and let Christ die on him. But he knows that's actually what he needs to do in this weird way so so these are like yeah. social roles that it's enacting mm-hmm. like that, that they would have been familiar and with and the christ okay. in this poem is is a hero he he's a heroic christ who's fighting off satan and um and in a very powerful one um, unlike the christ in crucifixions that you'll see later in the middle ages that are very vulnerable and broken and uh, twisted mm. and we're getting this story from the perspective of the tree then like of the it's, tree. it's vocalizing like this is actually like sort of per- anthropomorphized or I don't know how to yeah. anthropomorphized yeah. <laughs> so this stone sculpture right it could have been like the setting of this poem could have been a person at the bottom of this, this is an 18 foot high stone sculpture. Like wow. I've, I've seen it. It's now inside of a church. So you can't quite actually get to the very bottom. Um, cause it's down in the, down ground, in the ground to protect it. Yeah. But it would have been just stunning to be on the ground and looking up 18 feet of stone sculpture. And it would have been painted. There would have maybe been jewels encrusted inside of it. So it would have been sparkly. 
And to like, it's not that hard to imagine that maybe a cross like this could actually talk to you. And what would it say, right? And that's kind of the premise of the poem is if you could talk to the cross. And so through that art, that creation, we get to see how these medieval Christians were thinking about their faith and and then creating based on their faith. As yeah. Well. And this was a way for them to make sense of how heaven communicated with them. And they did it in their, with these material skills that they, they knew how, which was carve a cross and decorate it and write a poem. Which could have been the same kind of medium that would be used for other types of of non-Christian worship, Absolutely. right? This kind of reminds me of like a Christmas tree, right? Christmas trees and stuff like that. Those have now become Christian objects and, and things that Christians use to celebrate, but they didn't begin that way. So right. people are translating their sort of religious language into their new faith, it seems like. Absolutely, yeah. And poetry, alliterative poetry, predates Christianity in the Germanic communities. And so you have epics like Beowulf, you have... Um, and there are also stone sculptures that predate Christianity as well. And exactly how they worked in the community, it's scholars still have lots of questions about that. I imagine there's a ton of different things you could have chosen. Why that particular stone sculpture? Why the why that one for this chapter? I, I think there's so many possibilities. Uh, that that was, was really hard to curate uh, a, a set of examples for this chapter. I drew uh, on the fact that the Dream of the Rood is anthologized in many British literary history um, books. So if you have taken a British literary history class, you've likely read the Dream of the Rood. So I thought it would be a more accessible and familiar poem than maybe some other poems only scholars still, would know about. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. So another aspect of uh, Jesus's life that you cover in this chapter is ministry. And Christians felt the call to follow Christ and to be like Christ and how Christ's mortal ministry especially played out. So what did you highlight in the chapter for Christ's ministry? Uh, I tried to emphasize that many medieval Christians felt called. Um, they felt a vocation to follow the life of Christ. And this manifests itself in many different ways. And we already talked a little bit about the different kinds of professed religious. And, and this is where I tried to give some examples of real people, um, who felt called to different kinds of religious life. So I gave an example of, um, St. Francis and, uh, Claire, who were both foundational in founding the Order of the Franciscans, um, which was a communal order, but it was an order that was very much focused on caring for the, the poor locally. So they, they weren't retreating from the world the way um, maybe the Benedictines were or the Carthusians or Cistercians were. Um, but the Franciscans very much wanted to help the poor and they were, they were more urban and, and took the vow of poverty and chastity really seriously. And so I talked about both of them. I also talked about some lay orders that were starting to emerge in the, the later Middle Ages. The Beguines in uh, the Flanders region were women and some men who were not professed religious, didn't take official vows, but did start to live in communities. Um, and, and many Beguines were focused on teaching children, sometimes orphans. And others focused on creating hospitals and providing um, medical care to people who otherwise couldn't afford it or didn't have access to it. 
And they would feel called to that. They, you know, they would see Jesus healing, for example. Absolutely. Right? And they would say, oh, healing is part of Jesus's ministry. We should perform acts of healing. And that would include hospices and the modern hospital is sort of an outgrowth of these types of communities, right? Yes, yes. And so uh, an individual would often have some kind of a spiritual experience in their youth, maybe, or even as an adult, where they would maybe feel Christ's presence or have some kind of transformative spiritual experience at a, often at a sacred space where they, they felt like they needed to imitate Christ the way that Christ lived in the New Testament. And so they, they would take on like healing, preaching, caring for the poor, uh, living without purser script, um, were all common ways and and living celibate lives too that was really important in the medieval period for many religious professed religious and even lady who decided they wanted to live a more religious life than maybe they had earlier in their life right your chapter is good at showing how institutional religion and kind of personal or smaller communal religion sort of interacted right like some people were connected, as you said, like joining official orders, for example, versus people that did more voluntary kind of non-official type of, of things. And and I really like how you show that variety. Another facet of Jesus's life that you highlight is, is the passion. Uh, in other words, Christ's suffering and death. And you talk about how a lot of Christians were working on this meditative worship of Jesus. So we have Christians establishing hospitals and, and really engaging in kind of social issues. And then we have Christians that are more meditative and seeking visions and amazing experiences. And they would do this, you say, by reflecting on the passion or on Jesus's suffering. So talk about some examples from this category. Yeah. Um, so in the high middle ages, so this would have, I, I mean, not that this wasn't happening earlier, but this became more common in the 1300s and 1400s. Um, there was a, a significant or a very influential text called the Meditations of the Life of Christ. That's a in translation. And this text was likely produced by a poor Claire, so um, a follower of, uh, of the Franciscan Order for Women. And um, it basically laid out, retold the New Testament stories in a very imaginative way and invited the reader to feel like they were actually in those scenes. Like you're sitting with Mary and baby Jesus, or you're standing at the foot of the cross, um, watching Christ bleed, uh, from the cross and, and die. And, um, and this text asked the reader to meditate and and feel the suffering, Christ's suffering. And as a person really internalized the Christ suffering, then that transformed you through compunction, through penance, and that you yourself wanted to respond back to Jesus with a, the same level of compassion and care, and therefore to treat other people with compassion and care as well. Um, and so these, these meditative practices, um, became quite widespread among the religious as well as the lady. It, it was, it was really almost ubiquitous across Western Christianity. This particular text was translated in most of the European vernacular languages and inspires a lot of artwork. And I, I give some examples of some sculptures of, I mean, usually we think of the Pietas being a Renaissance invention, but, what is the pietas? I don't know that. So a pieta is of Mary holding a, the body of dead Jesus. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the most famous is Michelangelo's pieta in Rome. 
but there there was a much l- a longer tradition of this and so i give uh, i i found a, an image of a alabaster stone sculpture of mary holding her adult son and there were wooden sculptures of this of a similar style and and so you that draws on um, human mother-child relationships, right? That many people, that would be their lived experience. And so there were easy connections to the life of Christ. And and Mary's suffering was often a way into understanding the suffering of Christ because many women lost children in childbirth or as children. And so that grief was a really powerful lived experience that could be then easily translated into understanding Christ's life. Mm, So you'd have Christians, especially women, like reflecting on these images of Mary holding Jesus and kind of putting themselves in that, I guess, having this fellow feeling then, right? It sounds Mm -hmm. like worship was more than just about recognizing that Jesus died for, for us and that sort of thing, but also just on an emotional level, the emotional life of the people that were with Jesus at the time and that these, these, Christians are sort of putting themselves into that story themselves or, or feeling those same feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even men, right? There are many Marian images in, in, in regular homes as, as well as in, um, male monasteries as well. So yeah, the, the, the family dynamics or the interpersonal relationships of daily life were often, um, used to help to translate and help understand. Yeah, what it would have been like to be with Jesus and his family and his followers. Hmm. The fourth piece that you talk about is resurrection. And this is where you talk about liturgy. And you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, about communal calendar, about different days that that were celebrated in feasts and such. What's an example that you use to talk about how Christians celebrated the resurrection? Yeah, so there is the official liturgy inside the church, but in the 1300s and 1400s in England and in other places in Europe, the local communities start to actually enact dramatic retellings of scriptural stories. And in England, these are called the mystery plays. And so I give an example um, of in York, um, there was a mystery cycle that was performed usually around the Corpus Christi Day, which is a, a movable feast about 40 days, well, 40 days from Easter after Easter. It happens close to the summer solstice when the days are very long. And so they were performed on pageant wagons. And so there were, there's 43 or so plays and they start uh, at creation. And the last play is the judgment day. Um, and each wagon would, would have a cast of characters and would perform a specific part of salvation history. And so one of the plays was resurrection. And, and I give examples of the deeply personal, intimate interaction between Jesus and Mary Magdalene when she comes looking for his body, can't find the body and then meets the gardener. And I just, I really love the way that this Christ figure, um, who would have been a local member of the community. The restriction was, is you couldn't be Christ more than once because there, you, no one townsperson was supposed to like take on the guise of Christ perpetually. Um, so it had to, it had to be rotated. That role had to be rotated. But, but the Christ character just treating Mary in a very loving way and, uh, acknowledging her pain, but also inviting her into, in the recognition of her, she uh, 
recognizes her own worth and her own faith. Um, and I, I just, I just really love the interaction in the play form because I think it really models what the ideal was for an, for an individual Christian to have that same kind of really personal uh, relationship with, with Christ and this, this dramatic a reenactment that would happen every year was a was a way to help remind people that this was possible and even desirable. And I happen to be in York during a performance of the Mystery Plays. They they perform every couple of years still today. And in 2016, it was performed inside the Minster rather than outside on pageant wagons. Um, and I I was one of the first people to buy tickets, and so I happened to get a, a seat right on the front row. And it was such an immersive experience just to be surrounded by local members of the community retelling these scriptural stories. The cathedral choir was singing up in the lofts. There were giant puppets for animals and giant balloons for planets. I got a taste, I think, of what it might have felt like as a medieval Christian to participate in these dramatic performances. And I I did. I, I walked away just feeling transformed. Like I had a, a connection to these these biblical and scriptural stories that I I didn't before that experience. Mm. That sounds like a fantastic opportunity that you had. And, you know, this this connects to your research in general. And, and I just wondered if you could say more about how studying these things has impacted your own personal faith, because there's the life of the scholar. So you're doing scholarly research, but you're also a, a faithful person, a person of faith yourself. So talk about that intersection a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I think the reason why I was drawn to studying early medieval Christianity is there's familiar aspects to the the spiritual landscape, but there's also a lot of new and different facets to the spiritual landscape. So it really expands my spiritual horizon. And I am endlessly intrigued by the creativity of medieval Christians. So one poem in particular I don't talk about in the chapter, but has been really deeply moving for me personally, is a Middle English poem called Pearl, um, and it's a retelling of the parable of the vineyard in Matthew. And instead of the workers in the vineyard getting a penny, they end up getting pearls. And this transformation from a two-dimensional coin to a three-dimensional pearl, that symbolism is really significant. Because oftentimes we think about spirituality in a very economic, more mortal economic terms in terms of there's a hierarchy and there's lack and there's need. And, but the point of this poem is, is that God's grace is sufficient for all. And so when he gives out grace, he gives it out as pearls, right? Which can't be broken or cut or if everybody has a pearl, right? Then everybody's like equally satisfied and equally paid, if you will, but it's not really about payment. It's really about another image that's used in the poem is water flowing into different size vessels. And when you're full, you're full, right? It doesn't matter, you know, you, your size vessel, like, could, is a different size than somebody else's. But when you're full, you're full, right? You're completely satisfied. You have enough. And God's grace is not like a modern money, right? Where you're going to run out. He's, He's, he's offering this endless grace to everybody um, and will satisfy everybody. And I, I just really love that imagery of 
of satisfaction. And I also gave examples of Julian of Norwich's um, revelations of love. And she's really deeply touched me. Um, and I'm so grateful that she was able to record her her visions and her reflections about them. Um, it, it would not have been easy for a woman to be able to leave a record of that. Um, and so I'm really grateful that she did. Um, and I pick some of my favorite passages from her text in my chapter. Do you have one you can read for us? So this is at the very end. So she she had a series of 16 visions when she was probably deathly ill in May 1373. And then she spends decades reflecting about these visions and thinking about what she learned from them. And so at the very end of her reflections called The Revelation of Love, she says, and I... This is Middle English words, but I uh, updated the spelling so they sound more modern than if you looked at them in Middle English. So, So this is from the end. She says, Thus was I learned that love was our Lord's meaning, and I saw full securely in this and in all, that ere God made us, he loved us, which love was never slacked, nor never shall. And in this love, he hath done all his works. And in this love, he hath made all things profitable to us. And in this love, our life is everlasting. Mm, That's beautiful. Thank you for that. Miranda Wilcox is an associate professor of English at Brigham Young University. She earned her PhD in medieval studies from the University of Notre Dame. She wrote the afterword for the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints, and the afterword covers medieval Christians. Miranda, thanks for spending this time with us to talk about your chapter. Oh, thanks so much, Blair. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.